listening to a short cast from the London School of Economics and Political Science shaping the post-COVID world series, a digested version of our live online public event series. This event was recorded on 18th February 2021. A full version is available to download via the LSE website or from your usual podcast provider. Hello everyone, a very warm welcome to the LSE for this online event to all of you, wherever you are. My name is Eric Neumeyer, I'm a professor in the Department of Geography and Environment, though currently I'm the Pro-Director of Planning and Resources at the school. I am very pleased to be here to welcome Professor Naila Kabir for this very first lecture in our new series organized in memory of our colleague, Professor Sylvia Chand, who very sadly died about one year and two months ago. But now to today's event. Naila is Professor of Gender and Development at the Department of Gender Studies and also the Department of International Development here at the LSE. In her lecture today, Naila will use a feminist economic lens to analyze a range of different impacts associated with COVID-19 and to explore the kinds of policies that such a lens would suggest for a more resilient and equitable future. But now I'm delighted to hand over to you, Naila. I will be sharing what we as feminist economists have to contribute to the ongoing conversation about COVID-19. I will be drawing on contributions to a special issue of feminist economics on this topic, which will be online very soon and will be open access till July. First of all, I should say that while gender is the entry point for all our discussions, it is now more than ever embedded in an intersectional understanding of inequality, of the way in which gender intersects with inequalities of class, ethnicity, race, and so on. And of course, such an intersectional perspective is imperative in times of COVID. We have become all too aware that while the virus itself might be blind to your identity, your nationality, and so on, risks of infection and your ability to cope with the infection varies considerably. And it reveals inequalities that we knew were there, but we somehow did not comprehend them as fully as we might have. And these inequalities have become exacerbated in the times of COVID to the extent that they may have long lasting implications if we don't do something about them for social unrest and deteriorating rights. However, there's another outcome of this crisis, which I hope will have a long lasting effect and that it will hold the key to building a fairer economy in the future. And that is that the crisis has drawn attention to forms of work that are essential in our daily lives, much of which we took for granted when we look back on what we now call normal times. All the major crises that have happened in recent years have revealed various fault lines in society uh, between groups of workers who were more or less vulnerable to losing their jobs. This crisis has revealed a very different set of fault lines. Some recognized officially, others unacknowledged. The first and most widely recognized is between essential workers whose work must continue during the pandemic and non-essential workers whose activity has been brought to a halt or relocated to the homes. Essential workers are those whose services are necessary for us to continue in our daily life and to save our health and lives. 
They include well-paid professionals such as doctors and scientists and public health officials, but the vast majority are made up of low-wage service workers, normally deemed unskilled, but now recognized as essential to ensure the sale and delivery of hosts of goods and services, cleaning, home health, garbage disposal, the post, and so on. But amongst essential workers, too, there is a fault line, one that goes largely unremarked. And that is between paid and unpaid essential work. Although it is carried out as routinely as paid essential work and is as critical to everyday life as paid essential work, the work of those who undertake care work and household work within the home has remained largely invisible during this pandemic, even though the burden of this work has increased. And among non-essential workers too, there are fault lines. There are fault lines between those of us, like me, who can continue to work from home because I have access to necessary technology and those of us who can't. And among those of us who can't, the more fortunate live in countries where they may get some kind of support from their governments, the less fortunate live in countries where they have to fend for themselves. So turning now to labor markets, one of the big contributions I think that feminist economists have made to the analysis of inequalities in labor markets is in relation not to the way that individuals fare in the labor market, but how individuals as members of groups fare. And so it is through the segmentation of the labor market that we get to understand inequality. And this segmentation has helped to explain the disproportionate impacts that have been experienced by women as a result of two kinds of disruptions of labor markets. On the one hand, job losses in sectors that have been hardest hit by the shutdown, and on the other hand, overrepresentation in frontline jobs that have to continue. Globally, around 40% of all women workers, compared to about 36% of men, work in services that were hardest hit economically by the pandemic tourism, hotel and food services, wholesale and retail trade, labor-intensive manufacturing. In fact, rapid assessments in the Asia-Pacific region has shown that women's overrepresentation in these hardest hit sectors means that they have lost out most in terms of working hours and in terms of jobs. On the other hand, women are also overrepresented in the essential frontline work. Over 70% of women globally are in healthcare and social services. Labor market segmentation also explains the intersectional nature of the impacts of the pandemic, with gender intersecting with race, ethnicity, class, disability, and so on, to show up in patterns of unemployment. In the United States, not only did unemployment rates for women exceed those of men so far during the early years of pandemic, but they were even higher for Hispanic and Black women. In South Africa, the lockdown led to substantial declines in employment and working hours for both men and women. Job losses were larger for the African population than non-African, for the lowest income tercile compared to higher ones, and for the less educated compared to the more educated. And in each one of these categories, job losses were larger for women than for men. Amongst informal workers, we find greater vulnerability amongst some workers than others. So for millions of domestic workers, labor market setbacks and income insecurities have been extremely acute. And of course, 80% of domestic workers who clean and cook and so on are women. 
domestic workers unions have talked about the violations of workers' rights, not being able to leave employers' homes, having their leave cancelled with no notice. But these violations are most acute, of course, for international migrant workers, many of them who are domestics. They are caught between different degrees of lockdown in their home and host countries, leaving many without jobs and in a legal limbo. Those on sponsorship visas have been hardest hit. But of course, in some countries, internal migrants have been reminded of their unequal status. In the Indian context, of course, the abrupt imposition of lockdown measures, the closure of all establishments and restrictions on public transport left nearly half a million internal migrants without any work, forced to return home, walking several hundreds of miles and many dying on the way. Turning now to contestations within the home, feminists have analyzed households and families as sites of cooperation intermeshed with conflict, sites of care and intimacy, as well as power, inequality and violence. The analysis of domestic institutions and labor markets have tended to be carried out separately. You have people who work on households and people who work on labor markets, but the COVID disruptions have reminded us of the interconnections between the two. Disruptions in the economy have had profound reverberations within the home. While struggles to manage their consequences within the home, when homes are overcrowded, when the capacity to do homeschooling is undermined by other stresses, will have important implications for resilience and recovery. Research during the pandemic has trained a spotlight on the household's role in the unpaid care economy. Women continue to do the bulk of routine household and care work in much of the world, but there are variations in the extent to which men have increased their contributions to non-routine domestic work. Lockdowns and stay-in-home orders appear to have increased unpaid workloads. There was one contribution in our special issue that suggested that there had been a shift to a more gender egalitarian division of labor within the home during lockdown. This was in Spain, but there was a selection bias in that it focused on individuals with higher levels of education and access to internet. In these households, they found that a significant proportion of couples had moved towards a much greater egalitarianism, but a significant minority remained within the old norms, with women taking up the bulk of domestic labor. The more common pattern has been one of the disproportionate burden of unpaid work falling on women. The fallout from COVID and its impact on unpaid care has obviously had secondary health impacts in terms of both mental and physical well-being. Both men and women report higher adverse impacts in terms of well-being, but women are much more likely to report it when they report an intensification of domestic and unpaid care work. They were much more likely to report a deterioration in their mental and physical and emotional well-being. And a very interesting example of this came from a study of doctors in Kazakhstan. This study actually started before COVID, so it was able to use a time series to see how things had changed after COVID. What it showed was a clear increase in levels of stress and anxiety and in health-related and bad health behavior on, for doctors, but the gender difference was mediated by family structures so that the effects on stress and anxiety was much higher for married women doctors with children compared to unmarried women doctors. It also increased the likelihood of married women doctors smoking. 
but it reduced the likelihood of poor work eating habits. Among male doctors, stress, anxiety, and poor eating habits were higher among unmarried male doctors than married ones, whether the married ones had children or not. So clearly marriage and children assure better eating habits amongst male doctors and reduce their levels of stress and anxiety, but increase the levels of stress and anxiety and smoking amongst female doctors. So the study highlights the stresses created by the dual role that professional mothers must balance, but it tells us that these stresses are exacerbated for women doctors in times of heightened anxieties of COVID. A number of the studies actually cast an interesting light on the later stages of the life course in mediating the experience of pandemic. One point that was very clear is in the two or three contributions, the older generation featured either as recipients of care or as providers of care. So UK found that many of those essential workers often in irregular forms of work were relying on grandparents to look after kids. With the lockdown and the closing down of normal services and the lockdown on grandparents, these workers were having a great difficulty in managing both their work and their care services. So in the UK, grandparents live somewhere else, and so they couldn't come and look after the kids. But in South Africa, grandparents are more likely to be part of multi-generational households, and they have remained key childcare providers, both in the absence and presence of parents, as well as where parents are essential workers and have to continue to work. And in addition, the receipt of the old age grant to poorer sections of the older population has provided a crucial source of support at a time when so many parents are unemployed. But of course, the health risk to older people when they are exposed in these caring roles has not featured in the policy discussion, nor the tension of stretching their pensions over a larger number of people than in normal times. What, however, is missing from our special issue, and I hope that we will see it in future issues of feminist economics, is how older women who have to remain economically active have fared during the pandemic. One other issue on the domestic side, of course, which we have all read about is what has been called the shadow pandemic, which is intensified conflict and increased incidence and severity of violence across different countries in the world. The UN Secretary General reported that in some countries, the number of calls for domestic violence support services had doubled. So turning now to the public responses, let me start out the discussion with a very intriguing a very curious but potentially significant question that has surfaced during the pandemic. And that is, do women lead differently from men? Have they responded differently to the COVID crisis? There are two contributions on this in our special issue. They come to similar conclusions, but through different pathways, different causal pathways. One used data on 194 countries in which 10% were led by women. And controlling for other influences, they found fewer cases and deaths related to COVID per day in female-led countries. They suggested that the reason was that female-led countries locked down earlier. The other used data from 144 countries and also found fewer average cases of infection and deaths. They looked at social distancing measures and found that there was not much difference between men and women. And they felt that the differences reflected investments in the degree of health coverage. 
And of course, the differences in these results could reflect a sample composition, methodological approach, as well as the containment measures studied. So one looked at social distancing, the other at lockdown. And one point about the lockdown is, of course, that it is a short-term instrument which aims to contain the spread of the virus and even to eliminate it, and it leads to a closure of all economic activity. While social distancing requires behavioral change that can allow economic activity to continue. So there may be something along those lines that explains it. So let me now turn to feminist interventions in the policy discussions. Between February and September 2020, 208 countries and territories announced at least 1,407 social protection measures in response to COVID. Most of them extending coverage of existing programs to workers in the informal economy and removing various obligations and conditions which in order to facilitate access to income transfers. In the meanwhile, however, the closure of schools, universities and childcare services in more than 100 countries impacted on more than 800 million children and youth. Yet only 8% of the social protection and labor market measures addressed unpaid care through the provision of paid family leave, shorter and flexible working arrangements, emergency childcare services or support for long-term care facilities. This reflects the values that societies or their governments hold about who needs support. The COVID crisis has propelled the issue of social protection onto a critical juncture in the international agenda. When the pandemic recedes, we may choose to go back to the old normal, fall back on minimal safety nets and stopgap measures, which leave large gaps in coverage, or we may choose this unprecedented experience, the first global scale pandemic, and accept that we now live in a world in which individual risks and generalized crises are endemic, that they come in many different forms, uh, environmental, economic, the human body, and that we need a more systemic approach to social protection to sustain us through these crises, to do what we can to prevent them, but that above all, to address some of the deep-seated vulnerabilities that make everyday lives of so many people precarious, undervalued or unrecognized, and lead to intensified suffering in times of crisis. This pandemic has reminded us that there are services in normal as well as exceptional times that are essential for daily life to continue at some basic minimum level. But it has been the paid version of these essential services that have been categorized as essential. What continues to be hidden, unacknowledged, taken for granted and naturalized is the unpaid care and household labor that is largely provided by women within the family. By way of conclusion, I would like to draw on some points from the special issue, but also from the wider literature about how we can build back fairer. One is an argument that has been made by Michael Sandel in his new book, The Tyranny of Merit, written in response to the alienation of large sections of the American working class who feel that their society no longer values them, that the jobs they do have no recognition or respect. He calls for a normative shift, a new kind of social contract, which would combine ideas about distributive justice with ideas of what he calls contributive justice. His argument is that not everyone is going to rise to the top of their society. Not everyone is going to become rich, but they will still continue to do forms of work that are essential to the health of our society. 
The idea of contributive justice is to shift from valuing people on the basis of the money they make to valuing them on the basis of their contributions to the common good. It is a vision of society as constituted by our mutual independence. He would like to see us retain our recognition of the essential nature of the services provided by those who we now call temporary workers or casual workers, and to reward them accordingly with the returns that they need to have pride in their work and dignity in the eyes of others. And interestingly, given the emphasis that feminists have placed on the political role of budgets, he places a great deal of emphasis on budgets. How budgets raise money, who they tax and at what rates, how they spend money and on what, and to what extent does it create conditions for all to flourish, are clearly political choices. They reflect a society's judgment about what constitutes a valuable contribution to the common good. But unfortunately for me, I think Sandel seems to be talking throughout about paid essential workers. And he uses a wonderful quote from Martin Luther King to illustrate this. Martin Luther King Jr. said, one day our society will come to respect the sanitation worker if it is to survive. Because the first person who picks up our garbage is in the final analysis as significant as the physician. If he did not do his job, diseases would be rampant or labor is dignified. And I would like to extend that idea of contributive justice to those who do not labor for any kind of monetary reward. And this is a point that Nancy Fulber makes in her quote, and she says in one of the most famous sentences in the history of economic thought, Adam Smith wrote, it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own self-interest. Adam Smith, she says, neglected to mention none of these tradesmen actually put their own dinner on the table. It was done by the cooks, the maids, wives and mothers in one fell swoop. They are ignored. So I would imagine also that the sanitation worker that Martin Luther King was talking about also had someone else to put his dinner on the table. In order that we build back better, in order that we build back fairer, I think we need to take the whole care economy, the knowledge economy, the human capabilities economy much more seriously. We need good quality education, provision for lifelong learning. We need support for care services that will support and redistribute the unpaid labor of looking after the elderly, the disabled, and the young, more generally provided by women within the home, so that women can also participate more fully in the public domain. Guaranteed social infrastructure that creates people whose well-being, productivity, and resilience becomes the backbone of the new economy, its means as well as its ends. Few of us want to return to that top-down model that generated inequalities. Many of us would like to build upwards from our human base. Thank you very much, Naya, for your presentation. Fascinating and quite wide-ranging.